How was your Christmas morning? Was it magical? Did you run down the stairs? Did you barely make it to the morning, getting things done at the last minute? <laughs> was Christmas morning just another morning for you? You know, for me, one of the traditions I look, to, I look forward to most every Christmas morning is not very surprising if you know me. It's Christmas morning breakfast. Mm -hmm. Christmas morning breakfast in the Barbie household includes the rare delicacies of Canadian bacon and cinnamon raisin toast. We're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth today. And I wouldn't be surprised if Canadian bacon and cinnamon raisin toast are staple parts of our diet in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, most of us Westerners at one point in our lives or another spend the entire month of December or more looking forward to Christmas morning, you know, singing carols, baking cookies, writing letters to Santa, visiting the mall. Now, if we're truly in the Christmas spirit, we can hardly sleep a wink on Christmas Eve and we are ready to spring at the crack of dawn or even before on Christmas morning. Running into the living room, there's almost a violence of excitement that descends on the children of some houses as they dash to the living rooms and rip open presents. Now, I wonder if that describes any of you in this room this Christmas morning, a violence of excitement. Ah, probably not many. Maybe we, as the Righteous Brothers so aptly put it, lost that loving feeling uh, about Christmas because we've discovered what comes just a few hours after Christmas morning, and that is normal life. Just a few hours after the unabashed joy of Christmas morning comes normal life. For as much excitement, for as much joy that Christmas morning brings, we just know that it doesn't last. The gifts, the toys, eventually get tossed to the wayside, and we move on. Friends, don't we all secretly long for the Christmas morning that lasts forever? In C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces, the main character reflects that when she felt the happiest is when she felt her deepest longing. Her deepest longing for the place where she knew was the source of all beauty and all happiness. It reflects another one of C.S. Lewis's famous quotes. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I must be made for another world. At the close of his book in Isaiah, after what had been over 50 years of preaching God's truth, seeing the rule of four different kings in his homeland, Isaiah writes to those people who have been delivered from exile but are still waiting for something more, still waiting for that Christmas morning that will last forever. And as these people are still waiting, they might feel tempted to be feel left down and therefore feel tempted to stray as they are waiting. So the questions become, how will they and us for that matter get to the Christmas morning that lasts forever? How do we get to the world for which we were made, as C.S. Lewis put it? What do we do in the meantime while we wait? Will we remain faithful and keep looking forward? 
These questions and others are what Isaiah addresses as he closes his book. If you could sum up Isaiah chapters 56 to 66 in one statement or takeaway, it's this. The way to prepare for heaven is trusting in the Redeemer who is heaven's glory and trusting him enough to walk in heaven's ways on earth. The way to prepare for heaven is trusting in the Redeemer who is heaven's glory and trusting him enough to walk in heaven's ways on earth. Now, we've already asked several questions, and we're going to ask even more questions. We're going to walk through these closing chapters of Isaiah by answering five different questions. You'll see them listed in your bulletin. Is my prayer as we do that, that the result of our time and studying this passage of God's word would be that we all seek God, the creator, the judge, the redeemer, and we would humbly bow our knees to him, give our entire lives to him. So keeping in mind that this passage largely looks forward, and in so doing, it speaks of gracious and glorious blessings from God that will come to us in our future, in all eternity, the opening part of this last section of Isaiah answers our first question. Who are God's promises for? All those blessings of the future, who are they for? Uh, for the English teachers in the room, I'll say, for whom are God's promises? And not end on a preposition. But no one talks like that in real life. All right, so find the beginning of chapter 56. In Isaiah, if you're looking at a Bible, uh, the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 616. Chapter 56 of Isaiah, we'll read the first eight verses. And the word of God reads, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be a called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, you might remember it was a couple weeks ago, the height of the previous section of Isaiah we were in was that God's servant, who is Jesus, comes to stand and die in the place of God's people, bearing the righteous wrath of God for God's people in their place. And so what these verses, as Isaiah 56 opens after that section of just Jesus' work on the cross, these verses remind us that Jesus' work on the cross does more than remove the guilt of our sin. It also removes the power of our sin. 
Friends, the redemption that Jesus brings looks more like a change of status from being condemned to forgiven. It also looks like a change in living from following sin to following him. Notice how Isaiah starts off right away describing a new godly behavior of those who have been redeemed, of those who have been saved. Now, who is that redemption available to? Who is able to be saved? God talks at length here, you may have noticed, about a couple of different groups. He mentions foreigners and he mentions eunuchs. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, I will try my best to put it politely. Uh, Eunuchs are those who removed their productive part in priestly service to a pagan god. Foreigners and eunuchs. These are the groups God talks about. Both of them were considered unclean by Old Testament standards. In other words, these were the untouchables in society. People who were supposedly beyond God's grace. But even these groups, foreigners, eunuchs, could be redeemed. They could be saved. Why? Was our original question. Who are those who are saved? Look at verse 6. They are those who join themselves to the Lord, who love him, who serve him. Friends, God's promises are for those who trust in him alone, who have joined themselves to him in love and service. What God says here is just a reminder that we all need. What God says here is that where we come from and what we have done in our past does not have to permanently exclude us from him. Where we've done from, what we have done in our past does not have to permanently exclude us from him. What good news. The blessings of the finished work of Christ, full forgiveness of sin, peace with God, a healed and transformed heart, Those are just as much available to the person who lives in Section 8 housing as to the person who lives in the colonial house in a suburb. The full, finished work of Christ is just as much available to the teenager who has had an abortion, to the teenager who is the president of her high school student council. The full, finished work of Christ is just as much available to the person who has been divorced three times. As to the person who's been married for 50 years. My non-Christian friend here this morning, don't tell yourself that God cannot receive you. You might not have grown up in church. You might feel awkward stepping into these doors. You might have plenty of reasons to hesitate giving your life to Christ. But what God wants you to know, what God wants all of us to know, is that what matters to him most is that right now you rest trust in Christ. And in doing that, you choose what he pleases and you hold on to him all your days. Jesus reflected this truth in his life and ministry. Don't have to look very hard to find that. He quoted verse 7 here in chapter 56 as he was cleansing the temple in his day Because people in his day were cutting off others from the grace of God, especially others who were considered outsiders. Jesus is the one we remember even from his birth who attracted foreigners. He attracted magi from Persia to come and worship him. He's the one who attracted a Roman centurion to believe in him. He's the one who touched and healed lepers. And even in building his own church, Jesus saved 
an Ethiopian eunuch. Combine both of these categories, a foreign eunuch. And do you know what prompted the Ethiopian eunuch's salvation? It was reading Isaiah. God's promises are for those who trust in him. And friends, that can be anyone. Christian brother and sister, in our divided cultural and political moment, this should be how we first see people, especially people who disagree with us. This should be how we first see all of people, not just as enemies for us to correct, but people who are far off and without God and without hope in the world, just like we were, who can be saved just like we were. Who are God's promises for? They are for those who trust in God alone. As this passage continues, we see God inviting his people to relearn this lesson. So beginning in verse 9 of chapter 56, he condemns Israel's and Judah's spiritual leaders. Because instead of giving their lives in service to God, they gave their lives in service to themselves. And so you notice verse 11, they have turned to their own way, each to their own gain. And under the watch of these spiritual leaders, as chapter 57 continues, people had descended into wicked pagan idolatry. This is the background we read about earlier from 2 Kings 21. During the time of the reign of Hezekiah's son Manasseh, this time included practices just as evil as what verse 5 describes in chapter 57, child sacrifice. These are the depths God's people had descended to. God was no longer enough for his people. They wanted something new, something exciting. They wanted to get by, have a little fun along the way. And what was intriguing to them was a kind of lifestyle that says anything goes. And that lifestyle was found in pagan idolatry. And so to God, this lifestyle was like getting into bed with another lover. The Israelites who had descended to these depths needed to learn the truth of Isaiah 57, verse 13. Look at that verse there, Isaiah 57, verse 13. God says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. God's people needed to relearn. Their refuge was not their idols. Their refuge was not their heritage. Their refuge was God. God alone. Friends, this tells us, each one of us, has to make our trust in Christ our own. We have to make that our own. Parents in the room, it's important. You should model what trust in Christ looks like in everyday life. You should do that. You should stress its importance. You should try to model that humbly and lovingly as you can. But you should also teach your children that you cannot trust Jesus for them. You can't do that for them. They have to do it themselves. And so kids in the room too, I know there are several in here, uh, not many, but several. As you approach God now and one day face to face, do not rest on the fact that you grew up in church. 
Do not rest on the fact that uh, you have Christian parents. Both very good gifts you should be thankful for. Gifts that I received, I'm thankful for. But friends, no, kids, your refuge, just like the rest of us, is not in those things. Trust in the Lord, not in those facts. Trust in the Lord alone. Just because I know there are many people who fall back on, take refuge in, that they asked Jesus into their heart when they were six or seven. That they walked an aisle at a crusade back 25 years ago. That they went to church for a month straight 10 years ago. This is what they trust in. Instead of their current trust being the Lord and the Lord alone. So, first question. Who are God's promises for? They are for those who trust in him alone. Now, if the promises of forgiveness and transformation are for anyone who trusts Christ alone, then the next question we should ask is, what does it look like to trust him? What does it look like to trust him? A good place to start might be Isaiah 57, verse 15. There it says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to receive, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. The good news of God's grace means that he is able to save anyone. Save those who think they are beyond saving and save those who think they don't need saving. No matter where we think we are on the spectrum of human goodness, friends, God dwells in a place where we cannot reach on our own. But, graciously enough, it says God also dwells in another place. It says he dwells among the lowly and the contrite. Friends, these are places we can go. Trusting in God, this means what it looks like to trust in God. It begins not with thinking that we can climb up to him, but knowing that we can't climb up to him, that we can't earn our way up to him, but that he graciously and lovingly comes down to us. That is a humble trust, a trust that doesn't boast in its own moral achievements, but boasts in God's kindness and grace. A humble trust, that is what trusting in the Lord looks like. Well, Isaiah continues in chapter 58, he shows us what trusting in God alone doesn't look like. It doesn't look like. In this chapter, he's going to talk about the practice of fasting, uh, he'll, uh, abstaining from food for a period of time. That's what fasting is. He'll talk about the practice of keeping the Sabbath day, resting on the last day of the week. Now, Isaiah hones in on these particular religious practices because it's possible to do these practices in such a way that your heart is far from the Lord. In such a way where you are just going through the motions of these things and not actually engaging in trust in God. And so, we begin. Verses 3 to 5, chapter 58. Notice here, Israel's people going through the motions, more concerned with being seen as holy, but their entire lives screamed otherwise. Chapter 58, verses 3 to 5. Why have we fasted and you see it not? 
Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Friends, religion that doesn't have a concern for other people is worthless. Religion that doesn't have a concern for other people is worthless. Jesus said that the greatest command is to love God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength. And the second one is like it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. You might remember a couple of months ago, back in the book of James, James chapter 1, he said religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so from these verses in Isaiah 58, God reminds us that trusting in him is not just doing stuff so that we will be seen as holy and devoted to the Lord. It's about loving God in such a way that it spills over into how we treat other people. This just sounds really basic, doesn't it? Like if we love God, we should care about other people. You know, in our day and age, what's in vogue is we tend to privatize faith. It's a part-time hobby. You know, we, we emphasize quiet times, we emphasize coming to church, and those are both good things to emphasize. We need quiet times alone with the Lord, reading his word. We need to commit to coming to church. But friends, we must, we must carry out our love for and our faith in Christ out of our private times and into our public life so that it shows up in how we care and treat other people. Friends, God is not interested in privatized religion. Fellow Christian, this week, would you ask yourself, would we all ask ourselves, how we, with God's help, can carry out our faith in Christ to our public lives so that it displays itself in how we treat and speak to other people? No more private faith, public faith. Well, at the end of chapter 58, God calls out his people for habitually breaking the Sabbath day. We see here that God's people back then came to simply ignore the Sabbath. So verse 13, it says they went their own way. They did as they pleased on this day. And this showed that they were, by ignoring the Sabbath, it showed that they were ignoring God. Ignoring the Sabbath would be like removing your wedding ring right before you were about to commit adultery. Now, a mention of the Sabbath in these verses warrants just a quick word on how Christians approach the Sabbath in our day. Now, just kind of a survey of the entire Bible. Uh, we remember keeping the Sabbath the last day of the week as a day of rest, as a day of devoting to the Lord, is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It's permanently relevant to God's people. And then we read of Jesus' life and ministry. We find that he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man's good. 
In the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, we find that because of Jesus' finished work, that he has fulfilled what the Sabbath pointed to, so that he becomes our Sabbath rest. He allows us to rest. His finished work allows us to rest because he has finished paying for our sins. And so in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul warns about allowing to be judged on whether or not we keep the Sabbath. In other places in the New Testament, we see that Christians gathered to worship the Lord on the first day of the week, commemorating Christ's resurrection. So like every Sunday is basically Easter. And they called this the Lord's Day. So God has kept the promise, kept the pattern. There is still a weekly appointment with his people, calling us all together to focus on him. Friends, this is not meant for our convenience, but it is meant for our good, the Lord's day. Think about it. If you add up all the Lord's days in a year, every single Sunday, that's seven and a half weeks a year. Seven and a half weeks a year, not just of resting and kind of goofing off. This is seven and a half weeks a year to focus on God together as his people. Imagine if we took that even more seriously in 2020, how much the Lord can do in us and through us. So trusting in God, what does that look like? We said God's promises are for, the, for those who trust in him alone. Trusting in God looks like more than just going through the motions. But here, it does look like doing what God says. Trusting in God looks like living in obedience. So we remember, we are saved by faith in Christ, by grace alone. But our obedience shows that we want to please, to love, to resemble the one who saved us by grace alone. Shows our desires to follow him who saved us. So just a little bit more in this section of what does it look like to trust in the Lord. In chapter 59, the Lord again addresses his peop uh, the people of Isaiah's day. He reminds them that trusting him is not pointing fingers at him. It's pointing fingers at themselves. Not pointing fingers at him, pointing fingers at themselves. Find chapter 59, verses 1 to 3. We'll read that there, see that point. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your iniquities, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Friends, do you realize that peace with God, being at peace with God is not our natural state? It's not. That's because our sin separates us from God. And remember what sin fundamentally is. It's refusing to live with God as Lord. If we take that uh, analogy of an arrow, of trying to shoot an arrow at a target, Sin, the heart of sin, is not just trying to shoot an arrow at the target. It's shooting in the opposite direction at our own target. It's living for and loving more something else other than God. That's the heart of all of our sinful actions. 
And we could think of sin also in this way. If God has created us in his own image, then he has created us to reflect his character. So friends, how we live should show who God is. Has any one of us lived up to that? Reflected God's character? The answer is no. Peace with God is not our natural state. How could it be? So trusting God means realizing this, which will bring us to confess our sin. It will bring us to confess our need for God's grace. And this is exactly what Isaiah does in Isaiah 59, verses 12 to 13. You can find those verses there. Confession of sin, a need for God's grace. He says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Trusting God, trusting him alone, means confessing that God loves us not just the way we are, but friends, that God loves us despite the way we are. That's what leads us to admit our sinfulness. That's what leads us to uh, admit our need for God's grace, that God would have mercy on us. So just to cap up, resummarize where, where we've been so far, God's promises are for anyone who trusts in him alone. What does it look like to trust in him alone? It looks like not boasting about what we have done, but what God has done for us. It looks like not doing stuff in order to be seen as holy and good, but by actually living out our faith before other people. It looks like not ignoring what God says, but obeying what God says. It looks like not pointing our fingers at God, but first pointing our fingers at ourselves and confessing our need for his grace. This is what trusting in him alone looks like. Can you imagine a group of people who trusted in God like this? This would be sort of like a model home of the neighborhood God intends to build on earth. That would be what his church is meant to be. A place that genuinely trusts in God alone in all of their lives. Well, now that we know a little better what trust looks like, we can ask our third question. What does God bring to those who trust him? What does God bring to those who trust him? To sum it up in a phrase, he brings the blessings of the new covenant. He brings the blessings of the new covenant. We're going to keep going and keep looking at our Bibles. Chapter 59, verses 20 to 21. We'll read there, the very end of that chapter. 59, 20 to 21. It says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. There's one word in there I want to call your attention to. That's the word redeemer. Redeemer. That word, that the person, that office, that means that we have been sold and need to be bought back. The Bible says that us by nature are slaves to sin. So to be freed, we need a ransom. 
payment to set slaves free. And that is exactly what Jesus has done in his work on the cross. To live and die in our place. That's what Christianity is all about. Jesus said himself, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He is the redeemer. Friends, if you do not know this, would you investigate this more today? We would love to talk to you about this more. Christ's substitutionary work as our redeemer to buy us back from being slaves to sin. And it's out of this work, Christ's redeeming work, that blessings flow. And these blessings are recounted in chapters 60 to 62. Just going to survey them real quickly. So in chapter 60, verses 15 to 22, we're not going to read them, but just turn your eyes to them. Chapter 60, verses 15 to 22. God talks about what they used to be and what they will be. What they used to be and what they will be. So verse 15 says, Formerly they were forsaken and hated, but now they are eternally majestic and joyful. In verse 18, formerly violence, war-torn, but now a place of salvation and praise. Verse 19 says, formerly the sun was their light. Now God himself is their light present with them. Verse 21, chapter 60, formerly they were sinful, but now they are transformed and righteous. God's work of redemption to buy back slaves begins with transforming the people he has saved from condemned to forgiven, from sinful to holy. But then his work of redemption pushes out even farther into all of creation so that all of creation is made new. This is what he continues to talk about on into chapter 60 and 61 and 62. It's true that this would be fulfilled in a temporary sense. The city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt after uh, the people's exile. But God talks of something even greater here. He speaks of a new Jerusalem. Sounds very similar to Revelation 21 that we read about uh, earlier in the service. It's the culmination of the entire Bible, the entire plan of history. So brothers and sisters in Christ, thinking of the blessings that God will bring that flow out of Christ's work of redemption, transforming us, his people, transforming all of creation. If you look around, even right now, I give you permission, you can look around and notice we are in a pretty ordinary place. If you've been around Old Oak for any time, uh, there is sort of just a drumbeat of ordinary Sundays, ordinary Sunday. You look at this place, we have mauve carpeting, <laughs> we have wood paneling, and we have all in all what are ordinary people, myself included. But friends, let's not fall into the temptation to despise the ordinary. No, it's through the ordinary that God plans and God intends to show off his greatness. It's through the ordinary. So the fellow Christian sitting next to you in the pew, if you saw what he or she will look like and be one day, you would be tempted to fall on your face and worship that person. Well, friends, God is at work now 
in us, ordinary people. And one day we will see the fullness of that work, not just in ourselves, but in all of creation. We are included in that. This is what Isaiah talks about. So chapter 61 to 62 talks more about the future restoration of God's people and just more and more blessings that flow out of Christ's redeeming work. It includes the passage of Jesus' first sermon during his ministry. He was in the synagogue in the city of Nazareth, and he opened the scroll of Isaiah and read beginning in Isaiah chapter 61. So let's read there, Isaiah 61. You'll find the first verse. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's right there that Jesus stopped, he sat down, and he said, today this word is fulfilled in your hearing. I would have loved to hear the rest of that sermon. He said today that this scripture was fulfilled, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2a. You notice he stops before the words of judgment. So his work in his first coming was to free and release captives of sin, And his work in his second coming will be to judge the earth. That's what he will do when he returns. So here in chapter 61, we are reminded again that the blessings to God's people flow out of what Christ has done for them, not out of what they have done for themselves. So we keep going in this chapter. It's through Christ, as verse 7 says, we will have everlasting joy. It's through Christ, as verse 10 says, that we are clothed with robes of righteousness. This picks up a lot with what the New Testament says. A place like 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ is our righteousness, that we are accepted before God the Father, not because of our good works, but because of Jesus' perfect life given to us. Blessings that flow out of what Christ has done. This is what God brings to those who trust in him alone. These blessings that come from our Redeemer continue in chapter 62. Just a couple more will be done. Look at verses 3 to 5, chapter 62. It says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Look at the close of that chapter, 62, verses 11 to 12. Just such sweet promises of blessings in our future. Verses 11 to 12 of chapter 62. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Brothers and sisters, who trust in Christ alone. Words like blessed 
and blessings have become sort of like Christian ease. It's just words we toss around a lot, whether on social media or popular culture, and we end up not knowing what they really mean. Their meaning gets fuzzy. When we say God brings blessings to us through Christ's work of redemption for us, we want to make sure we're talking about blessings in the biblical sense. The greatest blessings that the Bible speaks about are not health and wealth and prosperity. The greatest blessings that the Bible speaks about is what's spoken of here. That God, the Holy One, the creator of all the universe, actually sought out and saved those who despised him. And that he redeems them, transforms them to be holy and to enjoy him forever. If you want to know more about the true blessings that God gives us through Christ, read Ephesians chapter 1 this afternoon. And see how God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And those spiritual blessings of adoption and forgiveness and being sealed with the Holy Spirit and having an inheritance are all laid out in Ephesians chapter 1. And so the point of all this, friends, what does God bring to those who trust him? Blessings that flow out of the work of Christ. The point of all this is that when we remember and dwell on these blessings, it's not that our problems go away. No, but boy, do they become less overwhelming. Standing next to you, if you know who he is, Shaquille O'Neal will seem huge. Shaquille O'Neal is a basketball player. He played for the Lakers, Miami Heat, Orlando Magic. He was about seven foot one, I think over 300 pounds. This is just a mammoth of a man. Standing next to you, Shaq is huge. But next to the Empire State Building, Shaq is tiny. Dwell on the uh, blessings that flow out of Christ's finished work, what's coming to us in all of eternity. It's not that our problems will go away, but boy, will they loom a lot less large. Well, fourth question, we got to ask the opposite one. We asked, what does God bring to those who trust him? But we also ask, what does God bring to those who don't trust him? Chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, we see that the redeemer of chapter 61 is also called the warrior. So if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see Jesus is pictured as the Lamb of God who is slain, but he's also pictured as the Lion of the tribe of Judah who comes riding on a white horse to judge all of the earth. And so the warrior pictured here in chapter 63 is one who defeats his people's enemies, who tramples down human pride that defies God and tramples down human pride like grapes in a wine press. And as a result, this warrior's garments are stained with the blood of his enemies. It's the same event that's spoken of in Revelation 19. This is startling language. And just like any language of judgment, it forces us to ask, how can God claim to be just and good if he never confronts what is wrong and evil? How can he claim to be just and good if he never confronts what is wrong and evil? And so in Isaiah's day, 
God had been kind to his people, very patient. But they again acted like his enemies. That's spoken of in Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 10. But then there is a turning point for Isaiah and a group of God's people that comes in Isaiah 63, verse 11. It goes all the way through chapter 64. It's a turning point when Isaiah confesses their sin and says how God had delivered them in the past and he can deliver them now in the future. And so stepping back from all of these words of judgment, what does God bring to those who don't trust him? And we can ask, why? Why this message of judgment here? Why is so much of Isaiah and the entire Bible, for that matter, about God judging sin? Well, friends, it's in part so that people who hear these words of judgment will turn back to God. That's exactly what happened in Isaiah's day. A group of, these, a group of people heard these words about judgment and turned back to God. And friend, if if that is you, if you're not a Christian this morning, you are included in that. It is God's kindness and mercy and patience with you to hear these words about what is to come for those who don't trust in Christ and who remain standing in their sin. We're meant to hear those words, and his kindness is meant to bring us to turn back to God. God means for us to hear the warnings of judgment that comes from one whose robe will be dipped in the blood of his enemies so that we will escape his wrath over our sin by trusting in the same one whose robes were first covered and stained with his own blood for our sake. Jesus is the lion. It is good that he will judge sin. It is good that he will establish justice on the earth because we see how messed up the earth is right now. But friends, if we say that it is good for him to bring justice, we must say that we too would fall under his judgment. So it is good not only that he is the lion, it is good that he is also the lamb. So that we must trust in his grace and his work to us as the lamb, slain for us so that we may go free. So there it is. A theme that runs throughout Isaiah is that God intends to bring all kinds of people into his kingdom. But it will only be those who trust in his servants, the slain and risen Jesus, who redeems captives from sins. And those who don't trust in Jesus remain in their sins and under God's good and right judgment. And so chapters 65 and 66 are another glimpse at the end of all of history. And there we get our last final question. What is the final lesson of all history? Well, God speaks of a new work he is doing in chapter 65, verse 17. Notice there. It says he's making a new heavens and a new earth. It's the first time this concept spoken of in the Bible. And the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, again, friends, it's available to all people, but it comes only through trust in Christ. It's like what Jesus said back in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to discretion, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These closing chapters contrast at length the fate of those who repent and trust in Christ, as chapter 66, verse 2 puts it, who trust in him enough 
to be humble and contrite and tremble at his word. It contrasts the fate of those people and the fate of those who continue in rebellion against God, refusing his love, refusing the work of the Lamb, walking in their own facade of righteousness. So Isaiah's central message in his entire book is that in all of life, in all of history, we look to the one who sits on the throne of the universe. It's that one who belongs glory and praise. And the end of the story shows us the same lesson. Look at chapter 66, verse 18. 66, verse 18. It says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. The right side of history is on the side of Jesus Christ. Whether through salvation or through judgment, Jesus will get glory. That song we sang earlier in the service, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, the very last verse sums up well what God's people will do in the very end. It says, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb, lamb. As we are exiles here on earth, we remember we are sinners redeemed by the lamb. Waiting for the lamb to return as the lion. Following him on our way home, where we will behold his glory. Let's pray. God, we want to be those who are humbled and tremble at your word to say that it is not in us that we will reach heaven, but that it is only because of our Redeemer who in his work to live and die for us purchased us back from sin. And we are thankful to you. Lord, we want to walk in our days here trusting you. Would you raise in us, work in us, genuine trust in you that extends beyond our lives in this short hour and a half on a Sunday morning and goes into how we treat people, how we live. And it shows that we are waiting for something better. We are waiting for the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. We are waiting for the lion who is first the lamb slain for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.